0: Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth, Episode 18, Beaumont, Part 1. Welcome back. Last time we talked about Frederick II and the end of the Norman Kingdom of Sicily. With Frederick's death, the Norman line in the south came to an end, but there was still one last descendant of old Tancred de Houtville ruling in the Mediterranean. In addition to England and Sicily, a Norman adventurer had also settled in southeastern Turkey and the state he founded would remain in his family through ten generations. Like the rest of the Norman success story in the south, it began with two sons of Tancred de Hautville, Roger the Great Count and Robert Giscard dominated southern Italy between them. Roger and his son settled in Sicily, founding a great Norman kingdom, but Giscard and his offspring turned their eyes east. Sometime before 1058, Giscard's first child was born, a son who was given the Christian name of Mark. A few nights before the birth, Giscard had been regaled at a banquet with the story of a legendary giant named Bouamundus Gigas, and when he saw the large size of the baby, he nicknamed him Boamund, inventing one of the more popular names of the Middle Ages. Almost nothing is known of Boamund's early years, although he evidently had some schooling since he could read and write Latin along with a smattering of Greek and possibly Arabic. When he was still young, perhaps four, Giscard abandoned his mother for political reasons, and though Bowman was now both illegitimate and disinherited, there didn't seem to be too many hard feelings as he was raised by his stepmother and given an important post in Giscard's army as soon as he was old enough. Perhaps this was because, regardless of the temporary needs of Realpolitik, there was no doubting who his father was. Bowman looked every inch at Hautville. With the broad shoulders, thick chest, and blonde hair of his Viking ancestors, he was also enormously tall, with an easy air of command. Even the restless and reckless streaks of his father were there. As one of his contemporaries put it, he is always seeking the impossible. Bowman got his chance for adventure in 1091, when Giscard decided to invade the Byzantine Empire. The 27-year-old was sent with an advance guard, and instructed to lay waste to the Albanian countryside, capture the port city of Valona to use as a bridgehead, and besiege the island of Corfu. He was immediately successful. The only serious resistance he faced was at Corfu, where the defenders openly mocked his small force. But when they saw Giscard's main fleet on the horizon, the garrison fled in terror. The reunited father and son marched north through the city of Duras on the Albanian coast. This was one of the most important cities of the Byzantine Empire at the time, partly because it lay on the western terminus of the ancient Via Ignatia, the 700-mile-long Roman road that snaked across the Balkans to Constantinople. If they could gain control of it, they would have a straight route to the imperial city. The empire clearly recognized the threat. The walls of Duras had been recently reinforced, and the defense was commanded by the emperor's brother-in-law. It was too valuable to bypass and too dangerous to leave in the rear. Neither side could afford to give in. The siege began on July 17, 1081, and almost immediately disaster struck the Normans. Thanks to some clever negotiating on the part of the Byzantine emperor, the Venetian navy appeared and attacked the Norman fleet. Giscard sent Bowman to fend off the threat while he maintained the siege, but the Byzantines had supplied the Venetians with their terrible secret weapon, Greek fire. The Venetians used submerged pipes to pump the flammable liquid beneath the Norman ships, causing Bohemian's fleet to literally burn out from under them. A few vessels managed to limp back to shore, but for all intents the Norman fleet was destroyed. Adding to the blow was the fact that word then came that the Emperor was leading his army in person to come to the relief of Duras. In order to inspire his men to a full-throated resistance, Giscard burned his remaining ships, and when the emperor arrived on October 15th, he had drawn up a careful plan. The heart of the Byzantine army was the Varangian Guard, Norse mercenaries who fought on foot with wicked double-bladed axes and were famously loyal to the position, if not always the person, of the emperor. And in this case, they were especially eager to fight. Many were exiled Anglo-Saxons who had been forced out of their homes 15 years before by William the Conqueror and were itching for revenge. Their rashness proved their undoing. Giscard held the center of his army back, and when the Varangians rushed forward, they were exposed to Bohemian waiting on the wing. When their ranks had been thinned by a steady stream of arrows, Bohemian charged in and destroyed what was left. The emperor himself was wounded and barely escaped, his army hopelessly shattered. Somehow the city of Duras held out for another four months, but there was no relief coming, and both sides knew it. When it finally surrendered, most of the smaller cities followed suit, even the fortress of Castoria, which was garrisoned by members of the Varangian Guard. If even the elite forces of the empire were demoralized, then the struggle was surely nearly over. Giscard retired to his winter quarters with Illyria firmly under his control. He wasn't fool enough to start measuring himself for a crown, but he did tentatively begin to plan his next move. One contemporary informs us that his intention was to have Bohemond sit on Constantinople's throne while he would found a larger empire to the east. Of course, there was still the small matter of Alexius Comnenus, the reigning Byzantine emperor, who inexplicably refused to admit he was beaten. While the Normans had been accepting the surrender of the western Balkans, Alexius had been busy sending his agents to southern Italy. There, vague promises of support and a healthy amount of Byzantine gold convinced the Italian barons to rebel against Giscard. In the spring of 1082, when the Normans were assembling to continue the march on Constantinople, a message arrived that the entire Italian peninsula was in flames. Giscard was forced to return at once, ordering Bohemond to secure Greece and Macedonia, but not to risk a pitched battle without him. Bohemond was now faced with an opponent who was roughly his age, but was far more experienced and an adroit tactician. The emperor's one glaring weakness was his army, which, though numerous, had few seasoned veterans. They clearly couldn't compete with Norman knights, so Alexius was forced to try other tactics. Bowman, meanwhile, entered northern Greece and began to systematically reduce the Byzantine fortresses there. Alexius pursued him, and when the two armies drew themselves up for battle, Alexius sent light chariots bristling with spears into the Norman line. It would have crippled the main section of the army, but Bowman had been warned and was expecting the ruse. As the chariots approached, gaps in the lines opened up and they passed harmlessly through. The Normans then charged the Byzantines and easily routed the half-trained recruits. Alexius regrouped in Bulgaria, and a few months later he tried again. This time, he had his men scatter nails across the center of the field the night before the battle, hoping to cripple the Norman cavalry as they charged. Once again, however, Bowman was warned, and in the morning he held his center back and ordered his wings to collapse on the Greek army. They broke almost immediately, and this time Bowman pursued Alexius into Bulgaria, taking its capital city. Though Bowman had been successful at every turn, that winter was a demoralizing one. There was little food and less money to be had. The Norman troops hadn't been paid for several months. Some began to question exactly what they were doing. Constantinople, which had seemed so close a year ago, now seemed increasingly distant. That spring, Alexius attacked for the third time. The Normans were occupying the city of Larissa, birthplace of Achilles, when the imperial standards appeared and began to advance. Bohemond immediately charged, chasing the fleeing Byzantines for several miles. This, however, proved to be a trick. Alexius wasn't with the few fleeing troops. Instead, he was with the main army, leading them into the Norman camp, capturing two years' worth of spoils. Beaumont, thinking he had won another victory, was relaxing by a river, eating grapes, and lampooning yet another example of Byzantine cowardice, when the message reached him that his camp was under attack. He raced back with his cavalry, but was too late. He managed to hold off an overeager Byzantine charge, but was forced to retreat and collect his scattered men, abandoning all the territory he had conquered that year to Alexius. The emperor, meanwhile, sensing that the tide was turning in his favor, opened up secret negotiations with Bowman's officers, suggesting that they demand their full pay, knowing full well that with the recent loss of supplies, Bowman had no way of paying it. He further offered lucrative posts in the imperial army, which he backed up with substantial gifts, or safe passage home if their honor prevented them from accepting. Some of Bowman's officers undoubtedly stayed loyal, but enough of them demanded their pay, that he was forced to return to Italy to raise the money. The moment he was gone, whatever morale was left collapsed. And with one exception, every single officer defected to Alexius. Bowman got word of their treachery as he was boarding his ship in the Albanian seaport. The war was lost, not by any glorious defeat, but by a thousand cuts. Understandably not wanting to face his father just yet, Bowman wintered in Albania waiting until the spring to return to Italy. Fortunately for him, Giscard was not particularly upset. He had had his own hands full putting down the Italian revolt, but he had settled it in such a ruthless fashion that it would take more gold than Alexius had to stir up trouble again. Now the emperor would have his undivided attention. That October of 1084, Giscard and his four adult sons sailed again. They were intercepted by the Venetian navy which scattered them, but when the fastest ships left prematurely to inform Venice of the great victory, the Normans rallied and managed to defeat them. It was too late in the season for much more campaigning, so the Normans wintered on Corfu. While they were confined, Bowman came down with a fever and obtained permission from his father to return to Italy while he recovered. It was a fateful choice. In his absence, Giscard caught the fever as well, and after lingering a few months, he died. Bohemond was the natural choice to succeed him. Not only was he battle-seasoned, commanding, and ambitious, but his only competition, his half-brother Roger Borsa, was just 13 years old and had already displayed the nervous incompetence that would be the hallmark of his later years. But the fact was that Roger Borsa, or more correctly, his mother, was present at his father's deathbed while Bohemond was away in Italy. She convinced the assembled Normans that her son, a legitimate heir, was the only choice to inherit Giscard's lands and titles. Surprisingly, she found a powerful ally for this argument in Bowman's uncle, Roger of Sicily. Whoever was chosen would technically be his senior colleague, and he naturally wanted someone he could manipulate. Bowman, still recovering in Italy, was summarily dispossessed. Roger Borsa and his mother had pulled off a clever coup, but if they thought the matter was settled, they didn't know Bowman very well. He was furious, and as soon as Uncle Roger was safely back in Sicily, Bowman started a rebellion. Roger Borsa tried to buy off his half-brother with the best part of southern Apulia, but that only encouraged him to try for more. He crossed the border into Calabria and convinced the most powerful of his brother's vassals there to switch loyalty. The revolt gradually spread throughout Calabria until Roger Borsa desperately called for his uncle's help the elder Roger responded for a price and forced Bowman to agree to a truce, essentially allowing him to keep what he had conquered. This uneasy peace lasted for three years until Roger Borsa fell seriously ill with a fever. Assuming that his half-brother was dead, Bowman moved quickly to seize his property, claiming to be acting to protect the interests of his nephews. News that Borsa wasn't actually dead didn't motivate Bowman to return his property as much as the sudden appearance in Italy of Uncle Roger. This time, Bowman tried for more subtlety. As soon as Roger returned to Sicily, he started a slow-burning civil war, which chipped away at Borsa's territory without being serious enough to draw in his uncle too frequently. This long struggle mostly benefited Roger of Sicily. Each time he intervened, he obtained more concessions from his weak nephew, But even he must have grown tired of the numerous trips across the channel to settle yet another squabble. In the summer of 1096, the city of Amalfi rebelled against Roger Borsa, and Uncle Roger, who had recently patched up yet another truce, summoned a frustrated Bohemond to join them as a sign of family solidarity toward the rebels. After nine years of a fruitless civil war, it was clear to Bohemond that his uncle would never allow him to have any significant power. But now, unexpectedly, a new opportunity presented itself. The year before, Pope Urban II had put out a great call for a crusade to free the Holy Land, and eager knights had begun to trickle into southern Italy in search of a sea passage. At first they had been mostly Italian, and Bohemond had ignored them as a passing fad. But as he sat before the walls of Amalfi, larger groups of French knights began to appear, and he realized the international scope of the movement. He would never be more than an upstart in Italy, forever held down by his uncle. But now his old father's dream beckoned to the east. If he couldn't claim a title here in the west, he could carve out a kingdom for himself in the Levant, and the crusade would provide the perfect cover. All that was left was for him to announce his intentions, and he did that in suitably grand fashion. In the middle of the siege, he called a great assembly where he dramatically swore to liberate Jerusalem and called for all good Christians to join him. He then took off his rich scarlet cloak and ripped it up to make crosses for his vassals and those who were quickest to kneel. The bulk of those present eagerly joined in, providing him with an army suitable to his rank while depriving the two Rogers of there at the same time. His annoyed kinsmen had no choice but to abandon the siege. The Houtville family was well represented on the First Crusade, No less than six grandsons and two great-grandsons of old Tancred joined. But none would loom quite as large, literally or figuratively, as Bohemond. Join me next time as I follow him on Crusade, where he again matched wits with his old nemesis Alexius and carved out a kingdom around one of the East's most famous cities. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book... Lost to the West, and creator of the Twelve Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.